service now. Can the Lord prepare a table in the wilderness is the question the psalmist asked this morning that Mark read for us. Can God prepare a table in the wilderness of our lives, in the wilderness of our exile, in the wilderness that the church itself finds itself in? And if you remember back to our sermons through the book of Numbers and partially Deuteronomy, um, my argument was is that the church's time is perhaps a wilderness time today. That as the people of Israel go into the wilderness, as they've been rescued by God, in the same way that we've been rescued by God through Jesus, we await the place where our temple is. We're given an image of this in the book of Revelation, that we too are a pilgrim people, a wilderness wandering people on the way to God's fulfillment. And I think a lot of the church's heirs, historically, um, as we look at the West in particular, come from forgetting that the church is in a wilderness time. They begin to think that we've already arrived. Now, many of you know I'm an appreciator of, of the theologian John Calvin, but I, I was reading through his um, uh, commentary on the Lord's Prayer in the Institutes with another pastor this week. And when he got to thy kingdom come, Calvin's argument was sort of like, it's coming, it's going to get bigger, hooray, and this, that, and the other, unable to see that perhaps the church existed in greater challenges than that. And when you begin to think, oh, we've made it and these things are all going okay, you can make choices and decisions that maybe don't lead to the fruitfulness that God has called us to. One of the classic ways of, of describing this, and it, you'll love the way the second one is, it, is it, 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 we view ourselves as a church triumphant, a church already raised with Christ, a church already in charge. We always make an heir when we go to that space. And the place that the church is called to be, in a phrase that that I love mainly because I think it describes so much, is the church militant, a church in tension with the world, a church that, that finds itself in a battle, the church that knows even it is there not yet. The love about Psalm 78 that we've read part of this morning is it recounts Israel's failures. One of the unique parts about um, the gift we've been giving through Israel and, and the Jewish canon in this is that they often will say, here's where we failed. Here's where we missed. There's a book that came out a couple years ago called uh, A Brutal Unity. And in a review of it, uh, it's by you from Radnor, but in a review of it, somebody said, imagine you're talking to somebody about Christianity in the church and they start to name where the church has gone wrong and the errors that the church has made. And another guy chimes in, who's a priest, with more errors and more than you can remember or name. Radner's book, The Brutal Unity, walks through the brutalness of what the Christian tradition has done in an honesty that would fit Psalm 78. We have our own tensions as well. But the question of the psalmist was, can the church prepare a table in the wilderness? Part of what this sermon series has been about is this is the last one, although I should say it intentionally ends with Pentecost, is that we're, we're ending with the Spirit sort of infusing us to be these people, to bring these practices, to trust that God is still present with us. Or in Emily's case, it, it's Ascension uh, Day, I believe it was Thursday, but that Christ ascends to fill all things. 
We are people left with an a moral imperative with no means by which to do it. God's spirit, Christ ascending to the right hand of the Father. These things are the ways in which we can go about it. Or today's word, the table, is, is the place where we receive perhaps the means of grace to be able to be what God has called us to be. But part of the, the argument has been that we exist in, in wilderness time, that post-Christendom has come to the West, that we are no longer in a positive or neutral world, but in a negative world, or you could choose post-Christendom. You could choose lots of different ways of describing the moment in which the church in the West finds itself, which it is not um, native to its dominant forms. If you wanted to talk about the tradition of the African-American church, if you wanted to talk the tradition of the immigrant churches that have come to America, um, there are places where we've seen this happen. But for the white sort of Anglo-Western church, we're finding ourselves in a place where we find ourselves lost again. And so one of the quotes, and if you've hung around me ever outside of church, talking about church, which is probably what I talk about all the time, sorry I'm so boring, um, is this quote from Alistair McIntyre from After Virtue. Now, I want to say that this quote inspired a book recently called The Benedict Option, which has good and bad points. But this quote about the fall of the West for Alistair McIntyre comes from 1981, early in, the, I think, the Reagan presidency. And he's seen things that you would say, this could have been written yesterday, today. And then and McIntyre, in another way, um, is not a Christian at this point. He becomes a Christian shortly after this point. But, but he is somebody who's naming the traditions in which the way the West has gone astray. I'll read it. I know lots of you are squinting because my font is too small today. Um, but I'll read it in a second. But this book that came out in 1981 named this challenge in which we've moved from a rational world where everything made sense to an irrational world that's governed by emotiveness. I said this phrase to a, a friend of mine from Rhodesia who has two college kids, he lives up the hill from me, that McIntyre's diagnosis of our culture as a motive, and he's seen it take over his kid's life, and he says, I want to read that book. I said, well, I'm not sure I could recommend that book because it's not the easiest read, um, but he got it, and he, and he worked his way through it, and he said, that was amazing. I think he's naming so much of what I see my kids going through in college and what's going on in the world, and um, even what he saw in Rhodesia as they shifted as a culture, too. And so I'll read the quote now. It's always dangerous to draw two precise parallels between one historical period and another. And among the most misleading of such parallels are those which are drawn between our age in Europe and North America and the epoch in which the Roman Empire declined into dark ages. Nonetheless, certain parallels there are. A crucial turning point in that early history occurred when men and women of goodwill turned aside from the task of shoring up the Roman Imperium and ceased to identify with the continuity, continuation of civility and moral community within the maintenance of that Imperium. So it took people turning aside from the massive political project of the time to say, what else can we do? Perhaps the foundations have crumbled so much, perhaps there is no place to go but to turn inside. What they set themselves to achieve instead, often not recognizing fully what they were doing, was the, the construction of new forms of community within, within which the moral life could be sustained so that morality and civility, civility might survive the coming ages of barbarianism and darkness. If my account of our moral condition, which we ought to also conclude, that for some time now we too have reached that turning point, 
What matters at this stage is constructions of local forms of community with which in civility and the intellectual and moral life can be stained through, which a, through the new dark ages which are already upon us. And if the tradition of virtues was able to survive the horrors of the last dark ages, we're not entirely without grounds for hope. This time, however, the barbarians are not waiting beyond the frontiers. They have already been governing us for quite some time. This is 1981, and it is our lack of consciousness of this that con constitutes part of our predicament. We are not waiting for a Godot, but we are, doubt we are waiting for a doubtlessly very different St. Benedict. St. Benedict is one who built and constructed forms in his monasteries of life that were able to make it through that time. And what you'll find in, in Benedictine monasteries at this time, and there's captured in a book um, um, by, a, it's partially in the How the Irish Saved Civilization, but another one, is they copied down everything. They didn't even go as Aristotle, not Christian, not in. Homer, not Christian, not in. But they copied down all that could point to good and true and virtuous, so that those things could be gathered again to sustain themselves through this age. So part of the argument that I've been trying to make more directly here than perhaps in the rest of the sermon series is that we find ourselves in a new wilderness. And the question the church asks is, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? And in asking that question, what we're saying is, can God do this, or should we save ourselves? Oftentimes, when the church gets to these points, they get busy making plans, trying to save themselves. But with the word today, table, the last of our five, what we're going to say is, where does God meet us? God has given us all that we need to be in the wilderness. God has instructed us in the scriptures and in confession and his divine order and in tradition so that we can be sustained in this place and receive gifts from the table. And so this is, is our task for today is to sort of look at the table in this way. Now, um, I was trying to think about what I've been trying to say about this. There's a hammer in my office. I meant to bring that up. Hammers signify potential. And so these might, might be a beautiful document or beautiful ideas, which is, you, we can debate that later. But if they are, they're only as useful as they're put to work. They're not meant to just reside in this place. So Wallace Stagner has this wonderful quote that says, we mainly live by forms and patterns, and if the forms are bad, we live badly. This is trying to construct forms and patterns and rhythms and ways of being in life that actually allow us to flourish, to live shalom, to live in order, to live in our lives fully, and so we started with um, the mission of Defiance Church is to be a witness of the trying God, reconciling all things to himself. Um, and this names that we, in this wilderness time, witness to God's work. We don't save ourselves. We don't do the work on our own. This is God's work in the world. We, we looked at this as a triple helix of, of faith, hope, and love sort of pulling together. And faith is that naming of how God has been good to us and saved us in the path Hope is that naming of this future. And this is why this wilderness time works, because faith, we look back. We've been brought out of Egypt. God has saved us and brought us out of death into new life through our baptisms and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Faith, hope, we look forward. 
we have a vision of this new Jerusalem, of this heavenly city where tears are no more and God comes and meets us and sustains us in a more full way. And what does that mean in the present is that we're drawn into practices of love of God and love of neighbor um, and joyous hopefulness of what's to come. And so in the one, three, five way of sort of looking at our common life, we move from witness to faith, hope, and love to word, confession, tradition, order, and table. Um, uh, the yeah so that's how we got to where we are today before we get to really table um i just want to take a time to look at our five images and break them into these three circles does anybody remember these three circles they're from uh the seven practices book which we still have like one or two copies of back there that we did for easter probably four years ago but what um, david fitch did in that book in his congregation seven practices was take um, each one of them and sort of put them in three different realms. And so the closed circle, well, I will start with the Bible, would represent the public reading of scripture, like coming together in the church to sort of be fed by this. This is where we hear it and we begin to bring it into being able to narrate our world and being able to live it faithfully. This starts in the church. The second circle, the dotted circle, is where we bring it into, um, I think I would primarily say, our households and personal lives. We've seen and been instructed in it in our church, and then we take it and break it out and bring it home. Here it's more visible to the rest of the world. It's out there in a way, but it's also still somewhat constricted. You would do this... Um, Practice of reading our, our houses of defiance as we get those started up again would be good examples of this. It, it comes out of the, the regular church service and it's practiced in a more sort of open way. And the last one, the half circle, I think is, is the space in which where we witness to it in the world. Its full shape isn't there. And so the reason why I bring these up is because um, the point of these is so that they go out so that we can witness to them. And I thought about each of you has um, many hours of the week that you're not in church or the church is not your work and this, that, and the other. And how do we bring these to those places? And, and, and so for these, I'll primarily focus on the last two circles. I think the first two circles are sort of obvious within the realm of the church as I walk through each of them. But I, I thought that maybe it would be helpful to, to walk through each of them uh, as if I were a barista which I was for six or eight years. So, you know, walking through them as a pastor is it's like, well, I wake up and then I step like, <laughs> um, walking through them in the realm in which where I worked, just um, a fully secular job, I think might be helpful. And so for Word, you know, this showed up for me in the ways in which I could get to the coffee shop when I did. Um, I don't wanna, what if I ever make myself sound good, be like, that was a day in a year maybe a two-year period. So no, I'm pointing at the optimistic view of this, not that like I've aced these my whole life or half of it. Um, uh, for, the, for the dotted circle, I could get there early and bring the word into my private practice there. You know, we opened in Seattle when I worked there at uh, 5.30, I think, and Kelly would walk me down there with our dog, uh, Basil, um, and I would go to work. And uh, there were mo mornings where I actually would sort of center myself with the word before I began that practice. But that half one, I found very interesting because in, in that work, in most workplaces, and I think a lot of them, you overhear conversations. And I was able to witness 
to, to by naming things from that centering on the word that I couldn't have otherwise. And this is um, to be light and free, I think. You know, when I first learned this skill or was constructed in the skill, you would, you would use it in such a way that it was more like beating people up than when it was inviting them into your narratable world. I remember this is a different job. I worked at McDonald's, and uh, some lady was really angry at all of us. Um, and she said, uh, isn't this supposed to be your way right away? I said, no, that's Burger King. Um, <laughs> not a high moment in my life, but... Um, but uh, as she walked away, some other women came up, and they were like, that was really hard. And because I had been reading the latter parts of Matthew's gospel during that summer, um, I said to them, well, you know, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. And because they were older women, and they knew the context of that scripture, they went, oh, that's heavy stuff. Because those who act like they're first now, because the burger didn't come out with two patties, I don't we don't make mistakes very often, so I don't know what she was complaining about. But, because the burger was not double well done, which is impossible to do, uh, and asserting herself as the first over people making five ninety an hour, um, in some ways she'll end up last in that equation. And not so much for me, because I had another job and I was moving on for there, but for my coworkers to live in a spot where all day, every day, they're reminded that they're last that God sees them, and they might be first someday. That one, this image, I think, just for that breaking it out into those two other circles, I think is pertinent. Confession, our second one. Um, confession we do at church, that's the, the full circle. The part circle, um, as I was thinking about this in, in the coffee shop again, is, is that you know part of it was just prayer. Um, uh, my professor, Dan, used to say that, you know, when you walk into a room, ask yourself what drama you're walking into and pray about that. You serve in the service industry, and maybe this is a limited example since most of us don't. I should have maybe picked a different moment in my life. Is that you're always walking into somebody else. Well, actually, somebody else's drama is always walking to you. <laughs> um, you're not walking towards them. As coworkers, which many of you are, you're actually walking towards other people's, and you can go the other way. Um, when, you, when you're taking orders, that's not an option. Um, but uh, to sort of be in prayer in that space. But I think that that half circle, that place where we can maybe point to this, is, is praise and lament with the people around us. When they have good news, let us be those who can joyously praise with them more than they can stand. This is great. And that way we confess to the glory that God is doing throughout the world for those of us who are aware for it and unaware of it. And I think even more importantly, lament. When we see woundedness and brokenness, people dealing with severe hurt, pain, cancer, lost children, um, cancer, um, broken relationships, that we are the ones who can walk into those places, not with cheap words or advice, but with lament. There we can bring our confession of faith out into the world. Tradition, the well, this was a hard one. Um, the uh, full circle, obviously, we tried to be a well-traditioned place here. And the part circle, I think that this is bringing tradition into your home. Kelly and I are not great art buyers. 
I don't know which one of us gets the blame for that. But early on in our marriage, we bought a weird sort of um, stone piece of, of Joan of Arc as just sort of a reminder of our honeymoon and stuff like that. But what I, I think we were trying to do in that, I don't even know where it is today. Yeah. Um, okay, in the garage where things go before they go to the thrift store. Um, what we're trying to do is bring something old to our place. And at that moment, I think it was, it was some sense inauthenticity, but inauthentic. We, we had little knowledge of who Joan of Arc is. It just had looked cool. But I think in, in the ways in which we can decorate our spaces and be in our homes, what if my challenge is, is everything I bring home to serve in my house is new and better. But sometimes you can go backwards and choose stuff that reminds us of what came before us. The text we had for this is that we've received the faith. It, oftentimes when, when uh, I have one uh, artifact from each of sort of my grandparents who have passed, to remind myself that I didn't invent myself here, that there was something before me. It's not up for me to solve all of life's mystery. A cross is a classic symbol of this in our households. And, and the second uh, the sort of witnessing it to the, to the world. I think in our, our places with, with neighbors and coworkers and such, um, it's, this, it's this knowledge that we have, have received and aren't inventing ourselves anew. And in cracks in images and in cracks in words, we can point that out, I think, in ways that are craftful, that invite people in. This is a hard one, I think, to do that with. Um, but I think that when you think about it in the ways in which you can inhabit space, you can inhabit it as somebody who's always chasing the newest, the best, this, that, and the other, with no room for what came before, or you inhabit it with, with wisdom and knowledge that comes from the past. Order was our next word. Um, and this one, uh, obviously, we try to order our service. That's Paul's command to us from Corinthians. Uh, there was a great... Um, meeting where I was in where somebody said, you know, like the Presbyterian said, everything should be formal and in order. And it's like, no, that's what Paul said in the first part. <laughs> um, but we'll take the blame for that one, um, that, uh, that we bring order into our lives. And this is where I think our, our households and our, our spaces can be places of order. There was, um, uh, when I was at the coffee shop, there was a way I could put stuff in order. But what I found is my office, when I had office space at places, the way that I could put that was a way people could come in and say, I feel like I can sit here. I feel like I can relax here. One of the ways that I think this shows up most in the modern world, and Kelly and I were, have done better and worse at this ourselves, is um, not orienting the place where you commonly sit, the living room, and most of us don't have seven of them. Um, when I preach up in Aspen, I'll have to be clear. Um, but... Uh, uh, in your one living room, so it's not oriented towards the towards the TV, but towards each other. That you craft a space that's ordered towards the meeting together of people, not towards the meeting together of us all watching something and consuming something. This quote, I thought, for the one in which we witnessed to it, uh, this is from Dorothy Sayers. The church's approach to an intelligent carp carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to... Be drunk and disorderly in his leisurely hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is that the first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. 
To bring order to your space is to bring goodness into what you're aiming for. You're going to spend 40 hours a week doing this, more or less. And to bring goodness, to bring to have the final output of that be something good is something that we can aim for. In the coffee shop, it went beyond good drinks, though. It went beyond, this is a place for people to recover and to gain um, strength for the day. This was a place for people to relax and to sort of converse. You know, you could do that poorly by playing music too loudly or playing music that is unable to, uh, to happen while a conversation is going on. And so you can bring order to the ways in which proper relationships can exist in your spheres. The last of which, which is, I think, the easiest in some ways, is table. Table, we practice, we meet at this table here at Defiance Church, and we receive from God these gifts. Um, we go out, the, the Jews, when the uh, temple was destroyed, um, after the Romans destroyed it, began to set up their household tables as if they were the table of the sanctuary. And then the father of the house became sort of the ritualized priest, so that their tables were um, ordered and created in such a way that they became sort of the sanctuary of being again. We, too, in our households can begin to have this meal and these gifts that God's exhibit for us mimicked or, or practiced in our common tables together. I was talking to, I think, Matt Francis and somebody else this week about a, don't let um, good be the enemy of, don't let great be the enemy of good or work that out and you're perfect. Ask Kelly what I mean later. My point being is one night is more than no nights. Five nights is more than three nights. Begin to inhabit that place in the ways in which you can. And, and hospitality is key with this one as well. How do we invite people in? And that's where that last one resides too. I think a little bit in hospitality, but also um, uh, in, in being able to sit at tables with others, knowing that the main table at which you receive at is a table at which you are a guest with Christ. The Catholic tradition, the, the wafer, the cracker, is called the host, which is... The host of the meal is not us. And so we go into spaces and places as if we were um, guests. Um, and not only that, but guests that can announce. Um, just a quick aside from C.S. Lewis, I guess. Um, this is the quote on the back of the bulletin. I, I said I'd share it earlier. Um, uh, I hope, uh, earlier in this sermon series, I hope I do not offend God by making my communions in the frame of mind that I have been described, describing. The command, after all, was to take, eat, not take, understand. Particularly, I hope I need not to be tormented by the question, what is this? This is one of the classic questions of Christianity. What is it when we come together to the table together? Is it the really Jesus' presence with us? Is it trans... Um, transubstantiated into Christ's presence. It is a consubstantiated with Christ's presence. Is it the community that makes it the real presence? Uh, I said that I would take Lewis's side on this, is that I hope that we can be a, question, a church that is not tormented by the question, what is this? This wafer, the sip of wine, that has a dreadful effect on me. Invite me to take this outside of its holy context and regard it as an object among objects, indeed as part of nature. It is like taking a red-hot coal out of the fire to examine it. It becomes a dead coal. To me, 
I mean, all this is autobiography, not theology. He's describing that theology has a place in this, but that that this is maybe how we can live with this. What is it we are doing here? Is it become uh, Jesus's? I, I prefer Calvin's. Uh, I gave him a hard time earlier. Um, that uh, that this is a real presence, but we don't over describe how it's a real presence with us. It's not transubstantiation in the Catholic sense, but but not denying that there's it's more than just remembrance here. Um, it's something beyond in that way, that there's a real thing going on here. So for the last uh, act of, of this sermon, and I'll, I'll um, try to keep it brief, brief, is this pattern of a Eucharistic um, pattern or ecology or liturgy. This is, this is the way in which many of the meals that Jesus is, takes up in the middle part of this, sorry, are are taken. They are taken, blessed, broken, given. When Jesus feeds the 5,000, taken, blessed, broken, given. When we're instructed to remember communion by Paul, taken, blessed, broken, given. When we're um, in what Francis read for us, same pattern, taken, blessed, broken, given. But this is like, if you were a first century Christian, I would think there's a chance that you would remember very well what is the pattern of Christ coming to us, not just in communion, but in meeting us in all our needs, that elements are taken, that they are blessed, that they are broken, and that they are given. And Paul's, uh, what Lauren read to us from the Corinthians, starts with remember. Um, and remembering, we go, um, remember when we did that on this trip and this thing happened. And a lot of the times we go, oh, yeah, I remember that. But that's not actually the point when you ask somebody to remember something, or at least if you're the asker often. You're saying, let's take from the past what was good or what was bad, or was a challenge, and bring it to the present again. And sit with that. We don't remember things just to be like, check. We remember things because they speak to us in different ways. They're things holding on for us. The, the, the word that is often used for this is animesis, which animesis captures that you're bringing it to the present in a way that, in which it is communing with you. You could uh, put a hyphen between re and membering, uh, remembering, membering it back together, piecing it back together. You're doing it again. It's not just this static remembering, but you're bringing it to the presence. It ends with this proclaiming. Uh, the, there was a Bible translation we used here that just struck me when I stopped during one of the times we were doing the communion blessing where it said to, to broadcast the Lord's death until he comes again. I'm not crazy about technology metaphors replacing scriptural ones. Proclaimed sounds better. But by broadcast, that brought my mind to like, oh, um, proclaim. This is to be a beacon for us until Christ returns. Oftentimes I heard that as just like, uh, till he comes back, no big deal. But like, it's actually supposed to go out. It doesn't remain here. Um, Proclaim that until Christ returns. Taken, blessed, broken, and given. Um, there are two ways in which we can take this. The first is way is to take it in the ways in which it describes Jesus who is for us. That he is taken, he is blessed, he is broken, and given. That this is the relationship. And, but as it is of God, it is of the people called the church. That we in the world, and this is crucial in Israel's story, are those taken by God. God is, is kind to remind them it's not because you were pretty, 
It's not because you were new, new, great. It's not because you were stronger than the rest. It's because I chose you. We as the church and we as individuals are those who have been taken by God. And when we begin to say, like, I've got it because I'm smart, we begin to forget the fact that it's not us. Because if we get too proud of ourselves for being these taken ones, which is not what it is, uh, we can begin to think that everybody else is dumb and not there. Uh, but we are once taken by God. Augustine, when he was instructing his uh, catechumens, he said, that is you there on the table. That is you there in the cup. Taken by God. We're those blessed by God. Israel and the church knows this well from that Abrahamic blessing, that you shall be blessed among the nations. Falls into being a blessing in the end, that they are blessed so that they may be a blessing. There's a beautiful part of that that goes into givenness. But that we are blessed by God. God gathers us in not just to break us, which comes next, but to bless us. In the context of this ritual meal, it's that prayer over it. First John, I believe, uh, but in our confession, um, that we used to use. Christ prays for us. Christ blesses us from where he sits at the right hand of the Father. And how easy it is to forget that. Broken. Israel finds itself broken. The church in its wilderness time finds itself broken. In our individual Christian lives, we find ourselves broken either by God or by fruit of our own work, seeing the goodness of God. Brokenness is a deep truth for this. We are broken in this revelation of what God has done for us. But in our brokenness, this is going back to that Psalm 51 confession one, is we are broken and then we are sent out to teach and to proclaim. We are given to the world for, for the life of the world. It's the deep challenge with being broken is today when you're broken, you just go hide. But the brokenness, and, and this, uh, not to spoiler, but the brokenness at the end of the violent Barrett Away, which we're reading, there's a brokenness, but he goes uh, knowing how, is it how swift the mercy of God is, Ray? Is that what it, how, um, in O'Connor's phrase, probably this isn't in that book, but how swift and how violent the mercy of God is, that there's an appalling strangeness from that Graham Greene thing, is that we, we quickly go out and proclaim. You see this in the disciples' journey from those who deny Jesus to those preaching at Pentecost, where we'll go next week. And so we proclaim this. So the table for us is this place at the center of our worship together. I was giving somebody a tour of our building this week, and they said, who sits there? I said, anybody who wants to, but my family. Because we center ourselves on this. Someday one of you is going to realize that that's the best spot to sit, because you'll never be in a sermon analogy or anything like that. I won't see you. Um, maybe I should start using you more as sermon analogies when I'm up here. Um, but we sit in this shape to center ourselves on that. I've said this before, but every room has a story, and stories of some rooms is everybody look forward. Some of The story of some rooms is this is a conference call. The story of some rooms is this is a meal. The story of some rooms is, is um, something grand is going to happen here. But the story of this room, we try to set it up in this way, is that we're centered on a simple table with simple elements in which Christ makes us guests again. 
And we receive from him the elements so that we may be strengthened in goodness of faith to serve him with a quiet mind and with peace. Let us pray. God, you have given us the gift of the table that centers our worship, where we remember and where we proclaim that which you have done. We come as those who are to be taken, blessed, broken, and given in the pattern in which you came to us. Be near to us now as we end this series so that these elements and this life may flow forth in good forms and good patterns for our lives. We ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.